You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening and welcome to this M Pavilion M Talks. Uh, it's wonderful to be here and it's wonderful to have you with us. My name's Alicia Blackham and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you here today. I would like to start by acknowledging that we are on the land of the Eastern Kulin Nations and we acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of this land on which we meet today. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and into the future. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands where anyone who is listening to a recording of this event might be placed, both here and overseas. It is my very great pleasure to welcome you here today. And this event today is entitled Achieving Age Equality at Work. And I'm joined by this wonderful group of people who have been working tirelessly to advance age equality. And so it's a really great pleasure to have them here with me today. So I'll start by introducing our amazing panel. I then have a few questions that I'm going to be posing to them. And then of course, we'll open the floor so that we can get your thoughts, your contributions um, and have your questions as well. So I'll start at the end of our row here and start by introducing Amy Cooper, who is the head of legal at the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. Uh, so the legal team at the Commission promotes equality and human rights through advocacy in the courts, through investigations into serious and systemic conduct, and through broader law reform initiatives. Amy brings to her role a really deep understanding of equality and discrimination law, which has been gained through uh, many roles prior to working at the Commission, including at Victoria Legal Aid, and also through a Churchill Fellowship, which she undertook going overseas to look at best practice and to bring ideas back to Australia. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Amy here today. We're also joined by Zana Bytheway, who is the Executive Director of Job Watch, which is an employment rights legal centre, which assists vulnerable workers. And Zana was just telling us that Job Watch has this incredible opportunity of having really long-standing members and staff who have been there for many years. So they know something certainly about how to keep older workers in the workplace and how to support staff to stay at work. Um, Zana has been at Job Watch for 23 years. She's made an incredible contribution as a strong advocate for workers' rights, and she's also uh, worked very closely with us at the University of Melbourne, so it's a great privilege to welcome Zana here today. And then finally with us is Juan Tran, who is the Principal Solicitor at the Young Workers' Centre. The Young Workers' Centre is a community legal centre and a one-stop shop for young workers to learn about their rights at work and who need assistance in resolving workplace issues. The Young Workers' Centre is an incredible advocate for young people at work. So one brings today a real expertise in helping younger people to navigate problems at work and um, her own experience as a practitioner uh, in that space. So we have an incredible breadth of expertise here today and people who are really advocating for people across the age spectrum. So I think it's a really great opportunity for us to have this conversation about how we advance age equality. So, and I should introduce myself very briefly, uh, which I forgot to do, so my apologies for that. Uh, so my name's Alicia Blackham. I'm an associate professor at Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne, and I've been doing work looking at how we can improve the law to advance age equality and what we can do to support people in the workplace at all ages uh, to ensure that we all have access to decent work. So I've got a few uh, preliminary questions that I will throw to this amazing panel, uh, but really we want to open up a conversation about what we can do to advance age equality and what we mean by age equality, which is always a bit of a thorny issue. So to start then, in a very broad and challenging way, how close are we to achieving age equality at work? Are we there yet? Unfortunately. Sorry, I'm... Unfortunately, um, no. Unfortunately, no, we're not there yet. And um, 
I know that because in 2012, Job Watch um, submitted a report in relation to um, age discrimination. It was called Grey Areas. And since that time, since 2012, we're still having this conversation. Um, it's regrettable that we are. And so I think ultimately much more needs to be done. And this is obviously an opportunity to raise that awareness and then also um, follow it up with some real action because I think that's what we really need at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone would say um, that we fixed the problem. I think um, we had, back in 2015, um, everyone on the panel would know, the Australian Human Rights Commission did um, a, a willing-to-work inquiry looking at um, the issues impacting on older Australians and um, their employment um, and barriers to employment in, in Australia. Um, and they did a national survey that found that a quarter of um, people who responded to the survey had experienced age discrimination in the last two years. Um, and since then, they've been doing attitudinal surveys looking at um, the attitudes of people and employers um, and have found some improvements. There's been a reduction in the number of organisations that say, oh, there's an age over which I'd be reluctant to hire people. Um, but by and large, the Australian Human Rights Commission has said that there's really been little gains and in some ways we've gone backwards. Um, and certainly at the Victorian Equal Opportunity Human Rights Commission, um, where I'm from, we certainly continue to receive age discrimination complaints and I'm sure the ones that we do receive are the tip of the iceberg. Um, so certainly agree, um, Zana, there's a long way to go. I think we have to be careful when thinking about age discrimination that we're not just talking about how it affects older workers, which is obviously a problem and not to be minimised, but age discrimination equally affects young workers at the beginning of their working life um, and it can set them back in really terrible ways. It sets them back for the rest of their, the rest of their working life and into their retirement. So one, on that note, young people obviously experience many problems at work. To what extent are they related to age? Look, there are lots of clear problems that are related to age. So we have workers regularly coming to us um, complaining that they've been dismissed around the time that they turn 18 or 21. And the reason for that is because we have laws that allow for discounted or reduced rates uh, on the minimum wage for what are called junior workers. Uh, but when they reach... Uh, when these young people reach the age where they would be entitled to the adult minimum wage, what we all know as the national minimum wage, uh, they may lose their jobs. That's very common across a lot of franchises in particular um, and very common in the hospitality and the retail sector, which is where the majority of the young people who come to us uh, work. But then there are other matters that you may not think are as clearly related to age, but but their age is certainly a factor. One of those is sexual harassment. Um, so sexual harassment, the predominant issue there is about power imbalance, but a key factor in power imbalance is age. Um, and especially for young workers starting out in a profession or in an apprenticeship where they're very reliant upon their employer. Usually those people starting out and relying on the employer are young. That creates the power imbalance that allows for uh, the exploitation of a person, either through sexual harassment or exploitation through something like unpaid wages. Susanna, JobWatch receives a lot of uh, queries and complaints from older workers in particular. Are they similar or different sorts of things from what Juan is raising that affect young workers? Um, they're similar to the extent that, um, in my experience, both younger workers and older workers are actually reluctant to speak up. Younger workers because they um, fear recrimination and of course the bulk of calls to job watch are actually not from the young workers, they're from the mothers of the young workers. So you can see that they're saying to mum, oh mum just let it go, it'll be alright. Whereas you know obviously mum has a very different attitude. When it comes to older workers, it's a different story. They seem to self-assess by saying, you know what, um, I have been discriminated against based on my age. However, um, I think that really it's time for me to move on in any event and make way for younger workers. So it's a sense of guilt. It's a sense that they've um, had their time and therefore... 
Um, they self-assess and say, look, I'm not going to make a complaint about age discrimination because it's time for me to, to move on. And that is a, um, an enormous um, shame because we all know that um, we want diversity in the workplace and, of course, we can't have that level of diversity if we don't have older workers participate. And, of course, they bring that depth of knowledge. How can you, you know, have that without the experience that they've had? So, incredible knowledge, um, bolstered by, obviously, their experience, and then, of course, skills. What seems to preclude them and make them lack confidence, though, is um, often in the setting of wanting to, um, to engage in more technology, because we know the advent of technology creates some um, greater um, challenges. And of course, um, older workers are perfectly capable of embracing that, but they may, may need a bit of training and a bit of support, but employers are reluctant to do that. And also we've found that some employers, especially when it comes to um, retail that you mentioned before, but where there is a sort of a, um, they want a face, they want a representation, they're looking for a younger image and it's very rare that they want an older image to represent the organisation. So we do have those challenges um, that are pitted against older workers. Susanna, I think you've touched on you know, what we might call internalised ageism. We see ourselves as less worthy because of our age, whether we're older or younger. And that's one of the real challenges that we face in encouraging people to complain or to challenge poor treatment that might be related to their age. So Amy, the Commission receives complaints. It's one of the places we can go to if we need help or assistance or if we want to challenge our treatment at work. What sorts of things does the Commission see or not see? Yeah, um, great question. So um, over half of the complaints of age discrimination that we receive at the um, Human Rights Commission are related to age discrimination in employment. Um, and we really only receive, in the last five years, about 40 age discrimination complaints at work um, a year, um, which, um, as I said before, we know is only the tip of the iceberg. Um, and by far, most of those complaints are from people who are over the age of 50. Um, and really, the Commission only receives about one complaint a year from people who are under the age of 30. Um, so certainly, that trend of, of younger people not being, not being as willing to come forward and make a complaint. Um, in terms of the kinds of industries in which we see most complaints being made in, um, it's retail, um, hospitality, security, um, health sector um, are, are probably some of the biggest um, industries in which people complain. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the biggest industries in which age discrimination is occurring. Um, and the kinds of discrimination we see are, are things that um, Juan and Zana have touched on. Um, people who are being precluded from the workforce um, because of their age, treated badly during the job because of their age or, or pushed out um, because of their age. And it really kind of lines up with my experience um, helping people who've experienced discrimination at Victoria Legal Aid for many years. Um, if I think about both ends of the spectrum, um, I had a client who who was a young worker who actually had um, in black and white um, a, a note from her employer at the age of 21 on her birthday saying, now you've turned 21, um, I'm going to have to let you go because you're too expensive. Um, and even though she had that rare black and white proof of discrimination, she didn't want to proceed with a complaint because it was easier for her to just move on. Um, and then certainly we helped many um, older workers at Victoria Legal Aid and had one client who applied for 700 jobs in two years um, and could see that all of the other people in the workforce, um, in the workplaces that she was applying at were younger um, and, and um, could tell that it was because of her age but knew it was going to be difficult to prove that uh, and so decided not to make a complaint um, for many years and, until she eventually did. Um, and so, so certainly I think... Um, the complaints that we see at the Commission um, don't reflect the, the, the scale of the problem. Um, and yes, there's a lot more to do. And I think what, what everyone's saying, that it's very hard to get people to come forward, it's very hard to get people to make a complaint. I've done my best to estimate 
what proportion of complaints we're getting, and it's probably less than 0.1% of those that might complain are actually making a complaint. So it's incredibly unusual for someone to come forward. So it sounds like there's a real problem in encouraging people to make a complaint, to challenge what's going on in their workplace. What can we do about this? Is there a way to support people to make a change, to, to support them in the workplace? What can we do? May I take that one? Yes, please. Um, I think the, the system we currently have is very much about an individual standing up for their workplace rights. And I'm, I'm very much all about that. That's fantastic and I want to support it. But it's an impossible thing for a young person or an older person to do through our legal adversarial system. It is an incredibly time-intensive, emotion-intensive process to work through to maybe not achieve very much at the end of it. A better approach would be a more collective approach. Um, something like the Positive Duty in Our Equality Act, but a positive duty with teeth behind it that people can uh, enforce more. Um, we at the Young Workers Centre also try to take a collective approach. So when someone approaches us with a problem at work, we try to ascertain if it's a problem that affects all the workers and then we try to get them to work together to organise to deal with the problem in the workplace. So it's that more collective approach and that, that the preemptive approach, the proactive approach that is a better way of, um, of tackling a problem that might allow us to get closer to achieving age equality at work. So Amy, can I throw to you on that one? Because one has flagged this positive duty. What is a positive duty and how does it work and how could we use it to advance age equality? Yeah, the positive duty is my favourite topic. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about the positive duty all night. Um, so um, absolutely, I think the positive duty is one of the really essential pieces of the puzzle of addressing age discrimination and all other forms um, of, of inequality um, that our equality laws are trying to combat. Um, and the positive duty in Victoria was unique in Australia up until recently. Um, we've, we've now got um, some other examples of it across the country, but we've had it since 2010. Um, and what it requires is employers um, to take, and all duty holders, to take um, proactive steps. So they've got to take steps that are reasonable and proportionate to eliminate discrimination as far as possible. Um, and so it's more of the kind of work health and safety approach. It's a duty to kind of um, provide a safe workplace. It's a duty to provide a safe um, work culture in which these kinds of things are, are less likely to occur. And, and what that might look like um, really depends on the size of the organisation and its resources, but it can include, um, you know, setting up policies, um, putting in place training um, and... Um, and, and a whole range of things that, that might make it less likely that this kind of conduct is going to occur again in the future. Um, and despite the, the great promise of our positive duty in this state, it's really limited by the fact that it can only be enforced by um, the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. And we um, weren't given, uh, well, we were originally in 2010 when our law came into force, we were given the power to um, really um, address breaches of the positive duty through investigations. Uh, but before our powers came into force in 2011, um, they were reduced and so it was, it was um, the bar for us to investigate was raised and our ability to require organisations to give us information during an investigation or to take steps to remedy the discrimination at the end of an investigation um, were severely limited. And so that means that, um, as you're saying, one, that the teeth to the positive duty um, aren't as, um, as strong as they could be. Um, and so that's something that we'd really like to see change um, to, to really encourage duty holders to, to step up and take steps to prevent this kind of conduct from occurring. Because um, as you say, the number of people who are gonna come forward and make a complaint um, is never going to be enough to prompt um, employers to, to take these things seriously and, and bump the kind of preventative action that we want them to take up their priority list um, high enough um, for them to put these kinds of things in place. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask the panel was around how we are all different and we're all different as we age and we're different when we're young and we're different as we get older. How do you see age interplaying with other things like our race, our ethnicity, our gender? 
Do you see this playing out differently for different people depending on how they're positioned? Um, yes, in terms of, we have to talk about that intersection, you know, because we always have to talk about intersectionality of aspects. It's not uncommon that um, you may have uh, age discrimination, but it'll be associated with gender. So essentially, we've got all of that um, playing, you know, in play at, at that time. Um, so I think that, and can I just go back to the positive, Judy, because I'm really, um, that's a really important thing, and I, I want to stress it enough, I'm, I'm an associate member of the Respect at Work Council, which is a national body, and you may not be, or people must be aware that now there will be, an introduction of positive duty when it comes to sexual harassment. So I just want to um, amplify why I have, while I have this opportunity um, that in terms of societal, structural, procedural and legislative change, that we can actually make a difference. And one of those ways is illustrated. Of course, we've had the positive duty in Victoria, hasn't really been embraced, but now I can see it at a national level that we're hoping that that will really um, have um, a real sense of movement and capacity. And of course, that will work. Um, and therefore, it means that it can be created in other areas such as um, obviously um, age discrimination. But I think societal norms, um, employer policies, you know, of course an employer has an obligation not to discriminate. However, we see all the time, you know, job applications, you know, they may um, ask for age and of course an employee doesn't have to disclose it. But I can tell you the number of times when they haven't disclosed it, but there, it will be a question about your qualifications. So if I say that I was admitted to practice as a lawyer in 1985, I think you can do the math fairly quickly. So we've got to be a little bit more proactive and forward thinking, and there's the positive aspect again. Let's not trip people up by things that are, that are irrelevant. Maybe limit that to ten, your last 10 years of experience. So there is, there is a lot that we can achieve in that way. I really like what you say, Zana, about, you know, seeing the movement and seeing the change. And I think, you know, we are seeing movement and we are seeing change at the federal level, particularly in relation to sexual harassment. There's been a lot of legal reform in recent months, but also in the Northern Territory. And they've actually picked up the Victorian positive duty. So we can see that Victoria is leading the way and other states and territories have done really extensive reviews of their laws to try to bring them up to scratch to meet us here in Victoria. So that's really promising too. I guess what we know, having had these laws in our books for some time, is that we still need more. And we're not necessarily there yet, even with the laws as they stand. So if you could choose a big change or a small change to advance age equality at work, what would be your priority? One. I think I would, well, speaking back to the positive duty, um, and I know we're all lawyers here, so we probably all approach the problem in a legal way. Um, I'm regularly a lawyer who says the law is very bad at problem solving because it deals with something after something terrible has occurred. Lawyers in practice mostly see people at a crisis point, at the worst point in their life. Um, and harking back to intersectionalities, the law boxes things and categorises things and fails to see how maybe an intersection isn't ticking two boxes, but some other more significant uh, multiplier of a, of, or exaggerator of a problem. So I would, I would pick the positive duty, but I would tackle it from a different frame and not from a legal framework. Um, I would tackle it from frameworks of best practice, but best practice codes and things like that, that might be actionable. Um, so one point is to produce the things that are required and the standards that need to be met first up and to front load the issue, to, to tackle it before someone is at a crisis point, but to make sure that in having best practice codes, there are consequences for not adhering to the best practice codes. So that importantly, the onus, the burden isn't upon an individual experiencing something awful to make sure society is right. 
And what sorts of things would you put in that best practice code in this context? What do you want to see employers doing? I want to see employers doing training from bodies like the Victorian Equal Opportunity Human Rights Commission about what different people may experience in their lives um, and how uh, approaches might be taken to affect that. Um, we at the Young Workers Centre did some fantastic training recently with YDAS, and I don't recall YDAS's, uh, what YDAS's acronym st stands for, but it was about um, how organisations can be better at uh, making their events and their programs accessible um, to, to people with disabilities or to disabled persons. Uh, and that taught us some new things that we will change in our, in, our, um, in our programs, in particular, making sure we have access keys, making sure we have social scripts, making sure that we put the burden on ourselves as the provider to be accessible and not to put the burden on the person who might require some uh, accessible options to come to us, to come forward. So opening the invitation. So that's one thing to do. Um, Others, as mentioned by Jana, would be making sure that training is provided when there are new technologies, so that if there are older workforces who may not be familiar with new things coming in, but even anyone, um, that there's the opportunity provided to them to, to, to change their skills, to upskill, uh, and not to just go um, or, or to rely on an ageist stereotype and say, you're not willing to learn or you're unable to learn, away you go but to have it be that the employer says, okay, there are new things coming in and we all have to learn how to use them. I guess that applies to young people too. If we assume young people always know how to use a workplace technology, that doesn't always work either. So, you know, these affect all of us. Zana, what change would you like to see, big or small? Well, um, yes, um, how long is a piece of string? So I think um, what I often find that when it comes to... Um, important decision-making that the real key players are missing. So I would like to see a focus on intergenerational collaboration so that I would like to see younger and older workers basically have a seat in the um, decision-making, at the decision-making table, in the process of decision-making. So I often find that when we're talking about age discrimination, um, that there are the people that are making the decisions actually um, don't really um, understand some real um, basic things that can be implemented. Um, and I think that starting with that is that the people at the decision-making table may not be aware that, for example, for a lot of wor older workers, they feel invisible, they feel irrelevant they don't put their hand up for a promotion because they self-assess that they're not going to get it anyway and it's time to move on. So I think it has to be really nuanced and understood what are the real issues, the pervasive ones. I'd also like to see a recognition at the decision-making table how good it is, how beneficial it is for the older worker, who incidentally comprise such a huge component of our workforce. In the last 20 years, they have the, the number of older workers in, in the workforce has doubled. So we're seeing an uptake. So there's a valuable contribution. So it's good for their uh, well-being, their physical and mental well-being. It's great for creating diversity in the work environment. It takes the strain of, um, off um, our um, health systems. So when you've got healthy, engaged older workers, then they're not relying on the health system because they'll be healthier. And ultimately, they won't be relying on benefits. So our whole pension system, the strain is reduced there as well. So I think that I would like to see these societal shifts and recognitions of the true benefits. Older workers are not a burden, they are a true benefit. And once we um, create that shift and that understanding, then they can be part of the decision-making process and ultimately affect the procedural, 
the policy development that employers need to undertake, and then, of course, the le legislative change, which all can follow through with proper community campaigns and community awareness. It's still fundamental. Education is still the number one platform to create change. Amy, what would you like to see? Well, apart from a more enforceable positive duty, um, I'll pick up on some of the other points of um, Juan and Zana. And I think one of the biggest areas for improvement is recruitment um, and the barriers that are in place in recruitment, um, not just for, for people who um, might experience age discrimination, but across the spectrum. And picking up on your point about intersectionality, of course, um, we know that it's going to be even more difficult for somebody who is a person of colour um, and an older person to get a job or um, somebody who has a disability and is an older person to get a job. And when you look at some of the statistics on, you know, labour force participation of First Nations people, um, uh, for example, you can see that um, in even though across the board there's a lower labour force participation, it's even greater when it comes to, to older um, First Nations people. So um, we know that we need to look at um, at these things from through an intersectional lens. And, and in terms of recruitment, um, there's a range of things that employers can do. The um, Human Rights Commission put out a guideline um, in 2014 about, um, you know, how to comply with the positive duty in terms of recruitment. And part of that is, is training. Um, and I think in 2021, the Australian Human Rights Commission looked at the training that organisations provide um, and found that um, two thirds of organisations don't provide any form of un unconscious bias training. And of those who did, only half of them covered age as part of that and, and attitudes around age. Um, so I think we need to see much more nuanced training being provided to people who are making decisions about which applications for jobs make it through to interview and the kinds of questions that are asked during interviews and um, and the decision about who should be offered the job. Um, so um, I think I think if I had to pick an area, um, I think a, a lot of work can be done around recruitment practices and, and the people who are running them. So one final point that I want to raise with you, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started tonight, is around technology. So we've said that, you know, a lack of training in new forms of technology can be a barrier to people staying at work. And I've heard this repeatedly that people might face a new edition of Microsoft Office and choose to retire because it's just so grim. Um, technology friend or foe for age equality, could it be helpful? Or do you think we're just seeing repeated problems? I, well, I, I don't think it needs to be either, um, or it could be both. And we don't know what digital technologies, we don't know what advances um, will make. Um, I was thinking as I was listening to Amy about recruitment in particular, that technology can be helpful in, in recruitment to remove the things that might uh, lead to unconscious bias. Um, so there are ways that it could be used, but not being, not being very techy and relying on other experts for that, that's where I'd go for, you know, it, it's a tool and it's about how we use it and how um, we make sure that we think about using it with consultation um, and approaching, approaching the use of the tool from our value set. Look, um, I've had to embrace um, technology. It's ever-evolving. And when you run a call centre, I'm really with the 30,000, 40,000 calls that we get, um, it's always, it's evolving all the time. There are things that I never thought that I'd ever be immersed in. I mean, telephony, I've got no... <laughs> how would I ever having thought that I would encounter... Um, telephony in such a way and also to deal with the complex issues of incoming calls, outbound calls, etc. However, um, technology, um, it's unavoidable. There are going to be massive and even more um, giant leaps in technology. So we all have to keep abreast of technology, young and old. It's the way forward. Um, we're looking at an incredibly robotic um, outcome for a lot of workers. So we need to be abreast of it. I don't think we need to fear it. 
I think the greatest thing is confidence. And um, when um, people make the assumption that older workers are not going to be able to manage this, that is the wrong assumption to make. Um, all that's required is some confidence and some time and some support. And we've all had to do it, not necessarily even in technology. Throughout our lives, before we had the challenges of technology, there were other areas that we needed support with. When I became a manager, as a lawyer, I became a manager and I needed to have support there. So I'm just saying those issues of support, of training, um, they are always required in an evolving workplace and technology is just one way that workplaces can evolve. Absolutely agree, Zana. And of course, um, employers should be providing training for everyone when new technology comes in. But I might take the friend angle. Um, and I, I think um, some of the, the difficulties that older people um, in the workforce might experience um, might stem from um, having a greater you know, incidence of, of disabilities as, as they get older. It might have to do with caring responsibilities for grandchildren. And technology has given us um, such great capability to work remotely and work more flexibly. And I think there's many ways in which the advancement of technology can actually help address some of the barriers um, to older Australians staying in the workforce um, to, to meet those kind of demands that, that might more commonly be on their shoulders. So it really comes back to, do we use these things in a useful, helpful way? And do we make the most of what technology offers us in terms of how we can advance decent work for everyone, uh, irrespective of age? That might be a nice note on which to open the floor if anyone has comments, reflections, criticisms, objections. <laughs> Hi, I'm Catherine, and I've had my third 21st. <coughs> um, and I think that some of the conflation of ideas is always a problem in this space. So a conversation that myself and a colleague supported here last year was around age-friendly cities. And we tipped it on its head and, and started to think about what needs in common are rather than actually looking at date of birth. And so I think that our first premise is to throw out date of birth. Um, and I mean that because I was discriminated at my younger years for not being clever enough or being too young to be president of my professional interest group when I was 26 and so on and so forth. And then I've just had that feeling the same in, at the other end of my career because I was not too old, but it was a, a euphemism and I haven't worked for the last eight to ten years, which seems like a real strange thing when you think about the backgrounds that I have. But I also feel that I don't just self-select. I actually acknowledge that in terms of the things that are current, I'm not current in the workplace any longer. And when I was young and, and cleaning motel rooms, I was also pre-professional life, paid at a much lower level... So I think if we take date of birth out and we have an education campaign that a job is a job, you set the requirements for the job and you apply against the requirements. And if you're actually wanting to change jobs or re-enter the workforce, whatever age group that might be, whether it's because you've had children and you want to change direction, you know, we talked about, I was in a conference today where we talked about ikigai, you know, great, meaning and purpose will... You know, at 40, you change your direction because you suddenly realise that X has happened, whatever it is. So I think that if I look at the things around ageism and they very quickly slip into old age, um, when I say I'm interested and have studied in ageing studies at Melbourne Uni, immediately people go, oh, yes, isn't age care terrible? And it's like, whoa, whoa, let's drop back. So can we actually in our laws, in our conversations. I mean, I love the fact that one of the earliest things was around, you know, a job is a job and why should I be 17 and busting my gut and then suddenly I'm out of a job? Well, that's just as bad as the other end. So I think we, we have a lot of drift in this space where if we actually go back to the needs in common approach, we start to think about, well, date of birth sometimes might be relevant, but maybe not. It's actually about... 
um, need for support. It's um, training, it's uh, experience, but, you know, we're not ateliers any longer where you had to hammer a, a leather thing for a long time. You know, so a lot of our enculturation about this idea that older is experienced is like, no, I'd actually like to read into something completely different where I would actually be 17 again and hope to be celebrated as being someone who was agile, courageous, etc., etc. So can we, can you guys, as the experienced here, ever envisage us actually having those deeper conversations which are not mired in the history of what has been? Can we break our path dependency? Can we do something new? Thoughts? I would hope yes. But it, it's, it's about, um, and this is touching on something Zana mentioned, that when policymakers are making policies, their, their consultation is with the people whom it's affected so that those people might bring forward a different idea or a different approach and to be open to those things. Um, I'm going to sort of answer that in a different way. It relates to the retirement age. And um, not that long ago, I recall um, a partner in one of those large um, accounting firms and they are renowned for having policies around retirement, for example, 62. And um, even though the um, Age Discrimination Act um, basically said you, you cannot, in terms of partnerships, if there are more than six, you can't discriminate, etc. So, um, and we, we anticipate that the matter resolves. So, it was a really interesting thing because he's saying it's 62, I'm ready, willing and able, I've got my best game, I've got it all here and why, why should that happen? So, he, you know, took, took on that challenge. So I suppose what I want, when we're talking about that kind of um, um, what can really change, we really actually need to stop and have this one size fits all. We can't, um, and I think CODA has made a recommendation that we can't set a, an age for everybody. You will finish work at this age or whatever, or you will get the pension at this age. It has to be an individual assessment, not based on your age, but based on your capacity to perform the inherent requirements of the job. So if I'm 65 and I can perform the inherent requirements of the job, then my age is irrelevant. Yeah. I think one of the challenges for us is to break these age stereotypes. And one of my concerns is often, you know, we see recommendations of, well, we'll bring older workers in as mentors. And that might be a great idea. They might be a fantastic mentor and yes, we may want them. Or they might be a terrible mentor. We really don't know unless we actually sit that person down and say, well, do you like helping others? Is this something you want to do? Might, exactly, do you have expertise here? Would this be helpful? Some people are great mentors, some people are terrible. And we just need to acknowledge that, you know, we're all very diverse. And one of the other things that I'd really like to bring into this conversation is about lifelong learning. We're all continuously learning, hopefully. You know, it's part of our life is that we continue to learn and grow, try new things, try new careers. Current anticipated rate is that we'll have four to five careers in our lifetime. I'm on to number three. I've still got a few years to go. So I might, you know, exceed my KPI on, on the number of careers. But we do need to keep learning. And I think having policies and supports in place that help us to do that, um, making TAFE courses free in certain areas, I think has been a really great initiative. Um, I'd like to see more of that. Free higher education might be too optimistic, but it would, be, it would be nice if we were to help people to learn and support them to learn at any age and then have high quality apprenticeships uh, that would support us to go back and try something new and learn something new. Amy, do you have thoughts about this? from the Commission's perspective? I don't think I have a solution. <laughs> um, but I, um, 
I might just take a, a, a like technical lawyer lens um, on some of the issues that have been coming up there around um, removing date of birth, and and just want to note for everyone that it's there's a specific provision in our Equal Opportunity Act around asking. Um, discriminatory requests for information um, and I think we need to ask ourselves when in recruitment or other circumstances we need to know someone's date of birth and when we don't um, and even if perhaps we need it um, for some HR back end um, do the people on the panel need to see it um, so I think there are some ways in which our laws can help us remove some of these um, considerations that might be playing into people's stereotypes and, and unconscious bias Thank you are there any other questions or comments or suggestions, ideas for what we can or should be doing? One of the points that Zana made that I really liked was about voice and participation, but also about intergenerational conversations. I think we need to talk about this more and we need to actually be willing to open up these conversations and they're awkward often. We have quite a strong ageist culture Age makes us uncomfortable. No one's willing to put their age on paper. But we need to actually have these conversations and essentially destigmatize age. We all have it. We don't necessarily look our age on paper. Chronological age is a very limited indication of our capacity. So let's talk about it more, which is partly why we're here today, to be honest. I, I, um, just in relation to, um, you'd indicated the voice, um, and that is really um, such an important um, point because um, it's not just about having little, for, you know, forums and media. You know, you had a, I was telling um, everyone today that I did an in interview for The Age newspaper, surprisingly enough, um, about, um, you know, older workers in the workplace. Um, so there's all of that sort of community awareness, but there's also a real voice that we need to have, um, especially as women, I hate to say it, um, uh, over a certain age we become incredibly invisible. So I think that we ought to call out, and when, I, when I'm talking about the voice, so there's the collective voice, and there are lots of things we can achieve in that space, but there's also at that very individual level, to be really confident and, um, and say, no, this isn't right. Um, I don't want to feel irrelevant. I feel that I have a lot to contribute and I will um, speak up. So there's lots of ways of amplifying the voice. Amy, did you have something to add? Um, well, I was going to just make a, a comment before about how we could really be interviewing you, Alicia, and one of the things that would help would be everyone reading Alicia's age discrimination research. Um, but just picking up on what Zana was just saying um, about women and, and, um, and their particular experience, I, it reminded me that the Australian Human Rights Commission research found that not only are women more likely to be perceived as, um, as likely to be, um, you know, older women, likely to be kind of slower workers and, and out of date with, with technology, et cetera, than men are. Um, women who experience age discrimination are, are more likely to experience um, a, a significant mental health impact as a result of that and lower self-esteem. Um, and I think your research, Alicia, has found that women are less likely to take complaints through to to hearing and to court. Um, so um, I think that there's many different aspects of this to, to unpack in the conversations that we have. One of the really um, somewhat grim statements that emerges in the scholarly literature is that women are never the right age. So age is never uh, helpful to women. Uh, so we're either too old or too young and we are judged more strongly on how we look. Uh, lovely at every age. So again, these are partly about how do we address these issues in an intersectional way, acknowledging that our experience of ageing is different at younger and at older ages? Can I just introduce that sort of women are too young, too old. Also, um, we've been working in the space of pregnancy discrimination. Another reason why women are not necessarily right is that um, they have the they may wish to fall pregnant, are pregnant, so they've got all the issues in relation to pregnancy discrimination um, during and then post, of course, and they'll have care responsibilities. And often we find that they actually want to, re when they want to return to work, um, their position has been made redundant. So um, it's this whole um, spate of challenges that uh, women are faced with. Thank <laughs> you.
I think we have to spend a lot of time being prepared to interrogate what our stereotypes are. And we have to think about or ensuring that when we move into a position of power, that we acknowledge we have privileges and then it is upon us to be paying attention to what what ages views, whatever stereotypes we might bring to make sure, yes, it's fantastic if someone has confidence to, to be forward or to speak up and we should be amplifying their voice, but the people in power should be the ones who are paying attention to what they're doing to make it difficult for other people to move ahead. I also think too, if we're in a position of power, of privilege, we also need to ask people what they want. And I think, you know, this is so rarely done at work to say to someone, what do you need? What would help you to do your job? And how can I support you? Everyone has ideas. Everyone has something that they'd like at work, in the workplace, from their boss. But very rarely are we asked what would help us. And often people have the best ideas about what they need. And that applies for age, for disability, for caring responsibilities. Just ask the question. I think we've got time for one last question, comment, provocation. Is this on? <laughs> um, I really, I hadn't even considered ageism as affecting younger workers. Um, and that thing about when you hit 18 and you age out of the system, your shifts immediately get cut, which has happened to me and I'm sure has happened to so many people working at all of those, like, mega retail giants like Coles and Kmart and, you know. Um, and I guess this is maybe a pessimistic perspective, but, you know, there's legislation, um, like, when you work five hours, you then get a 15-minute break and so you get scheduled on for four hours and 45 minutes. Like, or you people's shifts get cut so you're underworked and then you're getting harassed by members of the public um, because everything that these companies do is about maximising profits. Um, yeah, I guess it's like how you can make that legislation but ultimately these companies are always going to have maximising profits at the forefront of their MO. Um, Another thought that I had um, was like how much does ageism overlap with other kind of more subtle forms of discrimination? Um, you know, like tall people are more likely to get hired or I don't know if you've heard of pretty privilege um, or like forms of classism where people are judged on how white and straight their teeth are, like wearing professional dress, which can have all kinds of racial, classist... Um, you know, and sex-based elements into it, but you can't exactly control for these. Um, I don't think these thoughts come with the question, but, <laughs> um, but you might have some perspectives um, or thoughts. This is probably one for you, Amy, because what I was going to say in terms of the legislation, and I'm not disagreeing with you, young people experience some terrible things simply because of their age and because our laws allow for it. But legislation can actually also be very good. Um, the Sex Discrimination Act, which, which criminalised or, or made unlawful sexual harassment, occurred 40 years ago and we're getting there. And it's not great, it's not great, but we're getting there. And the Equal Opportunity Act that all of the anti-discrimination and equal opportunity legislation that we've had in Australia, in the various states, that make improvements on each other. And that's what we're seeing. It's a slow process. I'm not entirely pessimistic. But, but legislation starts the conversation, then we educate people, then we change society, and then maybe we can take down the neoliberal system. Absolutely, there's got to be many prongs to it. Um, but um, as, as Juan is saying, the, the legislation can work and, and to get to that issue of um, companies prioritising profits, um, we need to make sure that there are consequences for breaching the legislation. Um, and we, we have learnt over decades now that complaints 
aren't enough, the consequences aren't high enough to change behaviour. So we need a different approach um, and we need um, to put the onus back on the companies to, to take the steps that need to be taken to comply with the law and there need to be consequences um, for failing to do that. Um, you know, which, which um, financial consequences which go to the, the profit um, motivation. Um, so I, I think our system can tackle the problem. There's just a, a few little elements that need to be strengthened um, for it to be effective. And perhaps what we need is an equality commission that's empowered like the Fair Work Ombudsman and can take organisations to court and find them lots of money when they're not doing the right thing. Maybe that's what we need. Absolutely, because the Fair Work Ombudsman um, has done that um, a few times in relation to discrimination, but their ambit is so much broader um, that, that discrimination that it risks being lost in the mix of all of the other obligations um, under the Fair Work Act. Um, so if, if our human rights commissions that are focused solely on equality and sexual harassment um, and so on um, are, are more empowered and resourced, then, um, then we can have a really targeted... Um, and dedicated um, attempt at, at, at bringing compliance up. One of the things I'd like to add to this conversation too about employers who are purely focused on the profit margin, what we do tend to see is that they tend to have staff who don't stay very long. They lose people really quickly because people know that they aren't valued. They have to train people, recruit people all the time, and that's really expensive. So I think partly it's about us educating employers that if they want to have the best staff they can have, the best employees, the best workers, that requires treating them well and making them feel like they're valued. And that means not depriving them of their break at four hours and 45 minutes. So I think partly it's about our educative role too, to show employers that actually if we treat people well, that's when they will perform the best. A shake of the head, no. <laughs> I'm a health professional by background. I think it's when we actually start to embrace, you know, whichever side of political interest you have, is when we actually start to understand wellbeing economy and the downstream effect of... And I mean, again, I think you're right. It's a 50-year program. When I was a young woman, I expected that my son's son, who is by now just happens to have turned two, his experience of racism and white, white Australia policy, he wouldn't have a clue what that's going to be. So it's actually about in looking what's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the track, and I'm also a health policy person, and we don't do enough of that of setting aside the current and going, yeah, this is proverbial SHIT. Um, what do we want for our children, our grandchildren, our whatever? Because it is different. And if we're actually starting to see people talking about a well-being economy, whatever that means, rather than a capitalist, first world, growth at all costs, GDP, then you start to hear the conversation that says it costs more to train someone, you know, there's societal costs of mental health, well-being for teenagers and beyond, but we don't cost the full spectrum. We don't have a, a circular economy, to use the current phrase. So, I mean, I'm also hopeful. I think that we've got a pivot point of change, but we've got to call on the grandmothers and we've also got to call on our sense of what it was like when we were 17, as I said. And a job is a job. Let's go, you know, let's get to those fundamental things we know. And there are conversations, except that people are hijacking ageism as being old ageism. And they're playing into that because that's the argument. It's like, no, how do we bring our culture to actually understand that we are all, dare I say it, humanists? You know, we all live and breathe and, and bleed. I think that's a lovely note to close this session. And I leave you with this provocation of what do we want for those who come after us? What do we want for our children, for our grandchildren, for those who are just starting out in the workforce, for those who might be thinking about retirement? What do we want for them? And why should age play into their decision making? I'd like to thank you all for coming and joining us today. I'd like to really thank M Pavilion for hosting us and thank our magnificent panel. 
Amy, Zana and Juan. It's been an absolute delight. I hope we've given you some provoking questions, uh, maybe some answers. Um, and I was reflecting too, so 2024 marks 20 years of federal age discrimination law in Australia. So we are coming up to some sort of pivot point maybe. So thank you for joining us today and I hope this has sparked some more conversations to come. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.